0: Genesis chapter 14. In chapter 13, we have Abram coming back up out of Egypt, returning to his former place of worship there in Bethel. Abram returns and he worships God. And God, being gracious as he is, again declares to Abram, this land... This land of Canaan I give to you and your descendants. And this word of the Lord comes to Abram after he has separated from his only blood relative, his nephew, Lot. We see God bringing Abram full circle. And now that Abram has separated from Lot, God again speaks or communicates with Abram. Our relationship with God is on his terms. Sometimes we think we can approach God in and of ourselves whenever we please, but we should never ever forget that God has chosen to love us. Not required. He has chosen to love us. And one of his prerequisites is that we be obedient to him. And we show our love to our Lord by being obedient. And once again, God declares to Abram, after he returns back to Canaan, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. And I'm going to do this on a forever basis. So go, Abram, walk through the land And your descendants, Abram, in this land will be as the dust of the earth in number. In other words, there's going to be so many that you really cannot number them. And God reiterates this promise to a man that has no children. And Abram is not a young man, nor is his wife, Sarah. They're both well beyond what they call childbearing ages. Now, if a person were to look upon God's promises in the natural, they almost appear foolish. But faith is what God is building in Abram's life, and God is doing it one step at a time, very patiently with Abram. But let's switch over and look at Lot here for a little while. God will now begin to work in Lot's life one-on-one, just like he's been working in Abram's life. Lot is now out from under the umbrella of protection of Abram. He's out on his own, and many times God has to get us out on our own where he can deal with us one-on-one. Because, you see, God has no grandchildren. We're all his children. And he doesn't deal with us as grandchildren. He deals with us as children. Sometimes I want to think that God loves my kids through me. No, he loves my kids one-on-one. And he doesn't have to go through me to show that love. But as our children, as they pass into adulthood, there's a separation that goes on from mom and dad. And for a period of time, our children are what we would call spreading their wings, developing their own belief system, testing, if you will, what mom and dad said, if it's true or not, or if they really believe that it's truth. And sometimes this separation is painful for us parents to witness. But each and every person has to come to the realization of what they themselves believe. And it can be a painful process to observe. In chapter 14 of Genesis, it takes us through Lot's separation from Abram. Lot chooses to take the well-watered plains when Abram makes the choice. And he goes and he dwells first by the city of Sodom. Then he moves into the city of Sodom. And this Sodom happens to be a city that God calls exceedingly evil or sinful. And then the first 10 verses of chapter 14, uh, it names the five kings that come and take the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they take the people captive. You see, Lot has to learn a very valuable lesson, and that lesson is the way of the transgressor is hard. Sometimes we forget that. Having been a Christian for any length of time, sometimes we forget how hard it was being opposed to God in our lives. Lot has to learn that lesson. Lot and his family, all of their possessions, all of their wealth, everything that they have valued is now gone. And Lot finds himself now as a prisoner of these five kings that have come down and uh, ransacked the area. And we pick up the story in verse 11 of chapter 14. That's where we'll read now. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and he told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Tyribeth trees and Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Escol brother of Aner and they were allies with Abram now when Abram heard that his brother's brother was taken captive he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Neba- Damascus. So he brought back all the goods, and he brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevev, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the king who were with him. One of these captives aches. he escapes, and he runs to Abram with the news. Lot, your nephew, is now a prisoner of these five kings. What would have been your response? What would have been my response? Abram could have said, "Well, why are you telling me? We separated from one another. Lot is a big boy now; he's on his own. He can take care of himself." Oh, you say he was captured? That's too bad. No, that's not the approach Abram took. Abram is a righteous man. He does what is right. And his being righteous doesn't depend upon the choices that Lot has made. That's a valuable lesson for us. Be righteous regardless of what others do to you you be righteous. Abraham his response is to immediately take 318 trained servants or soldiers for that's what they really are they're trained in warfare. That's a lot of men to have trained in warfare that to be in your camp or in your clan. Abram has these 300 soldiers as part of his private army. This is really an indication of the wealth that Abram has in Canaan. Abram divides his troop. He attacks these five kings at night. And this kind of demonstrates Abram's knowledge, military knowledge about strategy, how to win a battle and that kind of thing. And Abram wins the battle. In our scripture reading, though, in Hebrews, we read that it's not only a battle, they call it a slaughter. Abram actually slaughters these five kings and their soldiers. But anyway, Abram brings back all the goods, as well as the people that have been captured, including nephew Lot. And then it's a sad commentary on Lot. For Lot he moves right back into Sodom, his sinful environment. Later, Lot will have to flee Sodom again and leave behind all his possessions, all the things that he has cherished and put a value on in life. And then we can see vividly the difference between Abram and Lot. Abram, A righteous man willing to learn from his mistakes. Learn from his trials. Learn from his errors. And we do not see that in Lot. We all make bad decisions. We can at least learn from them. It's it's been said... You are a fool if you do not learn from your mistakes. And I have to sort of agree with that. But anyway, we have the king of Sodom coming out to meet victorious Abram. So let's read about that in verses 18 through 24. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And, he, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing uh, from you, not even a thread, a sandal strap, nothing, and I will, take, I will take, not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." Except that which the young men have eaten, the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. We have here now Abram encountering a priest, Melchizedek, priest of Salem, or the old term used for Jerusalem. Melchizedek offers Abram bread and wine red and wine happen to be the elements of communion and we look and we see this Melchizedek and we're going to look at him a little further here in a moment but we notice that Melchizedek blesses Abram we have a pattern in scripture and that pattern is the greater always blesses the lesser Uh, When Jacob went down into Egypt, he blesses Pharaoh. Again, the greater blessing, the lesser. And we see that pattern. Melchizedek and Abram, they're going to try to outdo each other in these blessings. Both bless each other out of their resources. Abram can only bless Melchizedek By giving him his tithes. When we give our tithes, it blesses our Lord. But who is this Melchizedek? I firmly believe this is simply a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Hebrews 7, he describes, um, the writer of Hebrews describes Melchizedek to us. He's without father, he's without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God who remains a priest forever. For me, that can only be Jesus Christ. So we have what we call a pre birth appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, we have him here in the book of Genesis as Melchizedek. This remarkable priest of Salem, to me, has to be Jesus. Now, if you don't agree with that, that's okay. We're, we're going to let it go. Uh, we'll let you be wrong. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. But to me, it's plain, it's clear, it's Jesus. Psalm one ten four says the priesthood of the Messiah is a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. So we have Jesus, who took on the form of a man by being born a man of Mary in Bethlehem, but do not think for a moment that this was the beginning of of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. And that means he's from everlasting to everlasting, from the beginning to the end. He said I am the alpha, beginning, the omega, the end. <clears throat> but notice this blessing of Melchizedek. He blesses Abram by and with the authority of God most high. A name that uh, for God that Abraham will now incorporate into his vocabulary, he, Abram picks up on this, he likes that name, so he now will use that name. Melchizedek also declares God most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and he says, And God most High has delivered the enemies of Abram into his hand. God now not only owns everything, controls everything, but this is simply God omnipotent. And when we understand that truth, when Abraham understands that truth, that he now stands before the living God or the living Christ, it's noteworthy for us to look at Abraham's Reaction, his response. And Abraham immediately gives Melchizedek a tithe, one-tenth of all. Now, in the Mosaic Law, which is still a few hundred years away, tithing was and is a requirement of believers. But that's still at least four or five hundred years away. But Abram, he returns from battle of these five kings that he has slaughtered, that he has defeated. And he brings all the wealth that these five kings took from Sodom, Gomorrah, and all these other four kingdoms. And he's recaptured the people and their wealth. it's probable that also Abram brings back the wealth that these five kings had of themselves. Not only does he recapture the wealth of the four kings, he captures the wealth of the five kings that he has slaughtered. And he brings all these possessions back. And the king of Sodom says, you keep all the wealth. Just give us our people back. And then he probably said, please, because Abram's just (laughs) just won the battle, you know, please. (laughs) But Abram takes nothing for himself. But he does notice this. He does take a tithe of all this bounty, one-tenth of all the possession, the livestock, the herds, the gold, the silver, and he gives one-tenth of it to Melchizedek. And the evil kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, these evil kings, they do not utter one word of complaint about Abram giving a tithe to Melchizedek. In fact, they're happy to even have their lives and their people back. And they have it back because of Abram and that God was with Abram. These... Evil kings are more than willing to allow Abram to give away a tithe for saving their lives. Abram gives back to the evil kings 90% of their possessions. But he's given that tithe. He's given that tenth to Melchizedek. This, to me, is a vivid illustration That giving is not a money issue. It really isn't. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Do we understand in truth, in reality, that all we own and possess is a blessing from God? Do you really understand that? Or do we find ourselves complaining like some that are outside of the church complain. And I hear complaints because I'm a pastor, and I hear things like, all you preachers do is beg for money. Unfortunately, that's true in a lot of churches. It really is. I've attended churches where that has gone on. But in case you're attending here, in case you haven't noticed, we do not pass an offering plate. We don't do it. But it is also a truth that God has chosen his people to support his church. That's a God thing. Yet some believers... And you hate to even say this, but it's a truth. Some believers have grown so callous to the goodness of God that giving to God with a cheerful heart is no longer even an option to them. But these evil kings, by God's own commentary, these evil kings of Sodom are willing to give everything They said to Abraham, take it all. Just give us our people back. Because they're grateful that their life has been spared. And here's where we as Christians are condemned. God has given us eternal life. He's given that to each of us. And how do we respond to that gift of eternal life? Are we thankful? Are we grateful for the gift of Jesus? God has spared nothing for the betterment of our life for giving us eternal life. He gave us his son. And when you compare that to tithing, tithing seems... Very insignificant. It's a small thing. It's a little issue. It's not a major issue. Now, let me say this also. If you cannot give from a cheerful heart, do not give. Don't do it. Because in God's economy, it doesn't matter. If you can't give with a cheerful heart, don't bother to give. Because, you see, God owns everything. And he has demonstrated in this story of Lot and the kings and everything that he has the ability to take away the possessions of these evil kings. And these evil kings have had a complete attitude adjustment towards Abram and his offering to Melchizedek. They do not find that a bit offensive. If God can take evil kings and turn their heart around like that, what can he do to you and I that call ourselves believers? I tell you this, if it is necessary in your life for God to remove all your possessions to get your heart right, what do you think is going to happen? the possessions will be removed to get your heart right because He loves you that much. For us to recognize this, for us to see this, sometimes all we have to do is see or experience a natural disaster come our way. All of our priorities change when a natural disaster comes. Does a disaster have to come our way for us to be a cheerful giver? God has called us to be good stewards of what he has given us. He's called us to do that. Each and every one of us are called. There's no exception. Well, most of you be a good steward. No, each of you be a good steward of what I've given you. And we want to consider that all God asks for is one-tenth. You could say, we're getting off awfully cheap. (laughs) If God only requires a tenth, instead of saying, oh, do I have to pay my... Look at it this way. You're getting to keep 90. (laughs) You're getting to keep 90%. And when suffering does come and when catastrophes do come, it's amazing how our purse strings loosen up because we feel compassion. We feel uh, that we want to do something to help. And so we become givers when personal catastrophes come. But let me just mention this. It is much more pleasing to our God To be a cheerful giver when things are going good in your life. You show more character. You show that you have your priorities in line. When things are going good, can I be a giver then? Even the evil kings are givers when catastrophe hits. But can we be a cheerful giver when things are going good? It pleases God more. A giving attitude, a thankful attitude, is well-pleasing to our Lord, and he looks for that in our Christian maturity. By the way, giving a tithe by Abram was the only way that he could bless Melchizedek. That's all he could do. Melchizedek didn't need anything Abram had. But Abram wanted to bless his Lord. And so he gave him a tithe. Now, Jesus told us in the New Testament, he said, store up treasures for yourself in heaven that moth and rust cannot destroy. When you learn... And it's an ongoing process for many of us. When we learn that you cannot outgive God, like Abraham learned, you allow God to bless you abundantly. You allow God to show you favor when you've learned that you can't outgive Him. God is not a taker, He is a giver. Abram was happy, delighted to give God 10% of all the spoils that he had just taken. But also notice Abram kept back how much for himself? Nothing. Abram said, God has blessed me. I'm a rich man. I don't need anything. And he wouldn't take any of the spoils for himself and he keeps nothing back for himself. Abram has learned it is more blessed to give than receive. Have you ever thought, how much do I have to have before it's enough? We're rich people. The most poor of us in the world's standards are rich. How much does God have to give us before we become a cheerful giver? Last Wednesday night, we had Mike Richardson here, brother Bill Richardson. Bill's in Georgia today. Mike Richardson, he's a missionary from Mexico, and we were able to bless him with shoebox gifts. Just made up some little shoebox gifts talking to Mike's wife and she says you should see the face of the children when we give them this shoebox gift and i said well i've been blessed to be able to see that and i did right before we moved back here we took a bunch of shoebox gifts down to mexico and it, truly it does make their christmas just one little shoebox full of most of it full of hygiene needs and that kind of thing but they're they're just delighted to get them We also have Christmas catalogs from Gospel for Asia, where you can look through this and you can give an animal to a family in a third world nation, and that animal will bless them many times for years. So we have an opportunity to bless others, and just recently, within the last week here, we've started a what I call a Christmas fund here at church. And if you'd like to donate to this Christmas fund, simply mark on the bottom of your check, Christmas fund. And this Christmas fund is for helping those in need around our fellowship. That's all it's for. To bless those that perhaps are in need. We too... Need to be like Abram, a giver. And Christmas time is such a wonderful time, such a beautiful time to be able to do that. So I challenge each and every one of us look for a way to be a blessing to those that are in need. Amen. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.